Happy Easter to you. He has risen. Amen? Yes. We are glad you're here this morning. Uh, my voice is, is hopefully well enough today, although I, I got some uh, singing practice on the way to church. I know some of you know this, but it's a tradition in our car to sing uh, Larnell Harris and Sandy Patty song on Easter morning. Do you know the song? Do anyone you know Larnell Harris and Sandy Patty? A few of you do. You know, I just seen Jesus. And so it's an easy way, parents, to have your kids be quiet the whole car ride as they listen to us screech through that song because my voice is not high enough. But um, he has risen, and we're thankful to, to, to remember that today on Easter. And uh, I know that some of you are here for the first time, and you're invited by family and friends, and we want you to know you're, you're always welcome here to worship with us. We're glad that you've joined us for worship. But I want to be honest as we begin. I want to be very honest of what we're gathered here. We are not here this morning celebrating that winter is over or should be over, okay? We're not here to celebrate that spring has come, although I enjoy spring. Uh, We're not here because we have flowers and the grass is growing and we have to mow it and we can have dinner outside. All those those are great things, but that's not why we've gathered today. That's not why the majority of people seated around you have gathered today. We are here this morning because we believe that Jesus Christ literally and physically was resurrected from the dead. We believe it. We don't think it was a fairy tale. We don't think it's some sort of analogy. We believe Jesus Christ was physically and literally murdered, killed, and he was in the grave from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, Jesus physically resurrected from the grave, and we believe that, and that's why we gather. We gather every Sunday to celebrate that. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and we stake our lives on it. We embrace that, and we understand that there's big implications because of that. We have to do something. You have to do something with the resurrection, because if the resurrection is true, then all of it's true. If the resurrection is not true, then none of it's true. If Christ literally was raised from the grave, then we have all the reason in the world to have hope and have our lives transformed because of him. And if he did not rise from the grave, then the scriptures itself says that we should be pitied among all men. Meaning we should just, we should just mail it in. We should give it up. Throw in the towel if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But we believe, we stake everything And we preach that Jesus is alive. He's alive right now. And one day, when our lives are over, if we are found in Christ, friends, you'll be resurrected too. By the same power that brought Jesus back to life, we will have that too. So there's big implications for the resurrection we know. We believe it, and we think you should believe it too. And Easter is a great holiday. One in which I find very thankful that our culture wants to celebrate. I mean, they canceled the fair because of Easter. It's enough that people want to pause and consider. Now they think of Easter bunnies and chocolate, and chocolate's not bad, but there's a bigger reason. And so we have been opportunities as Christians to talk about Easter because the world is saying this is significant. Something significant happened. And so we want to take those opportunities to talk about this because Jesus came back to life conquering death and sin. And now as Christians, we have new life in him. And so this day is important. And I want to encourage you. We're going to, we're going to talk about 
what this means from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I would encourage you to listen well. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seats. We encourage you to grab one of those. We're going to be in the, in the, in the Scripture for about 40 minutes. And I want to give you my main point. So if writing notes helps you to kind of remember what I said, here's one main idea, the main thrust of what I'm going to share this morning. Easter is about Jesus dying for our sins, raising from the dead before many witnesses and supplying us with grace and salvation for this life. That's the main thrust of what we'll look at. We'll break that down as we go through it. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to walk through what Easter is all about. So if you have a Bible, turn, if you haven't already, to 1 Corinthians 15. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, it's on page 903. And if you're new and you're unfamiliar at looking at a Bible, don't be, don't be ashamed. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, this is Paul writing, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to, un, to one untimely born, he, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, the grace, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. As we dive into this, we have an amazing consensus from many theologians and historians that the book of 1 Corinthians was written just 20 years after the death of Jesus. So that would make it the oldest piece of literature we have in the New Testament. And so when Paul references what Christ has done for them, he's referring back to only two decades back, the memories and the stories, so it would be fresh in the minds of those that are, are hearing this letter read. What, what transpired on Golgotha would have been a rippled effect throughout the region. Hearing again that Christ died would have brought those images to mind, the stories shared from parents to kids. And if you want to find the foundations of what Christianity is all about, of what Christians really believe, if you want to find the core of what you must believe to be a Christian, you come to 1 Corinthians 15. This message is about Easter. This message is about the gospel. And the gospel is about Jesus. It's about sin and substitution. It's about history and resurrection. And it's about astonishing, transforming grace. This is the gospel, and it's here in our passage. And I couldn't think of anything more important to preach on Easter Sunday. So here's point number one. Easter is about Jesus. Paul writes, for I delivered to you of the first importance what I also received. And then he centers on that main thing, that Christ. See, everything in this paragraph is set off clauses and phrases that explain Jesus Christ. They all point back to Christ. And so Easter is about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. See, Easter is a history-changing event. It's an announcement that the old way of life is no longer. It's an announcement that we have a new king on the throne. 
It's an announcement that our common enemy has been defeated. Easter is the core event in the calendar of the church because without the resurrection, friends, we don't have any hope in this life. At Easter, we learn of the gospel, and in the gospel, we learn why Christianity is different than every other religion. Every other religion contains some sort of narrative about its founder, some some explanation of how it came to be, and every other religion centers on the founder per se, on, on, on the directions that's given. They land on what you must do, really. These core religions like the five pillars of Islam or the eightfold path to enlightenment of Buddhism, the central part of those religions is always on a set of direction on what you must do to gain eternity. And all those religions are heavy on work for people. But the core of Christianity, the very center of it, is not us. It's Jesus. It's not do, it's done. It's not try, it's believe. It's not worry, it's rest. And right off the bat, we learn that Paul didn't invent this message. This wasn't something that Paul just fabricated on his own. He says it was received and it was delivered. And what we learn from that is if you change the gospel, you lose the gospel. You and I are not called to give another message, a watered-down message, a more easily heard message. No, we're, we're to give the gospel of Jesus Christ alone because if we change the gospel, we lose the gospel. See, a good illustration of this is, is what is a mail carrier's job? What is the postman to do? You know, consider that just for a moment. A mail carrier is not hired to visit the store, to buy some, a box of cards, to bring them to your front porch, to sit down and write in the cards notes from you to someone else or from notes from someone else to you and then to lick, steal, seal it and put a stamp on it and give it to you. They don't write the message, Right? No, they are specifically hired to bring you the message that someone else has written and sent to you. They don't change the message. They'd be fired. They opened my mail and changed it. They they didn't invent the message. They deliver the message. And that's what we do as Christians. That's what we're called to do. We, We deliver God's message. We don't change it. I mean, how would you like that if you got a letter from Aunt Ruth and you open it up and you see a bunch of scribbles and the, the mail carrier's like, yeah, no, I don't mean that. No. I'm just going to change what she wanted to say. So you'd find, you'd report that mail carrier. Well, our jobs as disciples of Christ is to protect that gospel and not to change it and just deliver it, to unleash the gospel for others. Because if you change the gospel, you lose the gospel. Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul received it and he's delivering it. See, the gospel is not advice. As I said before, Christianity is is not advice about what you must do. Christianity is about news that's been done. In fact, one of the most impactful things about the whole passage is from verse 3 and verse 4. It says there, is anything we can do there? Look, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And what's our response? Well, we have it there in our passage, verse 1. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. That is the response of the gospel. You receive the gospel, and you stand in that gospel. That is your hope. Now, verse 1 is not part of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is that you can do nothing. 
Nothing you will do or have ever done can bring you to God. It only happens through Jesus Christ. Verse 1 is the response of the Corinthians to the gospel that was preached to them through Paul, and it centers on Jesus. So first, Easter is about Jesus, and you have to receive him to have eternal life. Second, Easter is about sin and substitution. What is the first thing that is told to us about Jesus in the passage? Do you see it there in verse 3? That Christ died for our sins. And right there we have sin and substitution. First is sin. Jesus came to earth to deal with sin. Whose sin? Our sin. This theme is repeated over and over throughout the Scriptures. Someone has to deal with our sin. Who's going to deal with our sin? We need a rescue from our sin. How do we deal with our sin against God? And and with all the Old Testament going now into the Gospels, we learn that we're sinners in desperate need of salvation. See, sin is our most fundamental human problem. We're all sinners. We all live for ourselves. We live selfishly. We've, We've ruined the world. We've sinned, and that's our most fundamental problem. We're alienated and separated from God. There's a barrier there, and Jesus came to do something about that barrier. Before anything else can happen, he has to remove the barrier. And we have an infinite God, and we have now an infinite debt. There's an infinite crime. There's an infinite barrier. That's why Jesus didn't come and say, just try to do better. Just, just say you're sorry. Just do this and do that, and, and things will get better. See, that doesn't deal with the problem. That doesn't deal with the barrier. It doesn't deal with the alienation. Jesus came to deal with our alienation to God because of our sin. And how did he deal with it? Through substitution. That word means so much for us as Christians, substitution, that Christ died for our sins. And and you got to think deeply about that. You need to consider that for a few moments and what that word means. It means which, on behalf of or, or place of, it's, it's a substitute. This is saying that Jesus Christ died on behalf of you. He was your substitute. He died in place of you. He took on what you deserve. Jesus took our place. We see this in other passages in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he takes our sin as a substitute and we get his righteousness. Now friends, that's a good exchange. In in, in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body in the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, we know sin. We sin all the time. Sin says your life for mine, your time, your energy, your patience, your work, you're all for me. See, we all sin all the time. And and Jesus comes into our world and says, I will give my life for you. He came to be made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. Jesus says, my life for yours my life to serve you, my life to save you, my life to redeem you from the pit, my all given for you upon the cross. Sin at its very core is that you serve me. 
your life for mine. You're all, so I, can, so I can go further and I can go farther. You sacrifice for me. You cover my flaws, my feelings. I don't want to take the hit. I won't lay down anything. You have to do it. You have to sacrifice your needs to serve me. But Jesus comes in utterly opposed, utterly different than that, and he says, my life for yours. My blood for you. And he lays down his life for his people. And, and, and we as a church now can decide every moment of every day to remember this sacrifice and look even in some ways to emulate it in our lives. See, we understand substitution. We really do. We, we display it all the time. We practice substitution in small ways every day. And you know how I know that? Because I see a lot of parents here, right? If you have kids, you understand substitution. Whether you recognize it or not, you understand substitution. See, you have this wonderful child that's been loaned to you. They're loaned to you, okay? Just so you know. They're loaned to you for a number of years, and you have the plan for them. You have a plan for a day, and it's a wonderful plan. Any planners out there? I love plans. You got the plan. It's detailed. You know how it's going to go. And then that child doesn't do your plan. They adjust our plans. They alter our desires. And we have a moment, a choice in that moment. We have a choice, a big one. Our kids, our kids need something. We have these plans and they get sick and they ruin those plans. Or they melt down or whatever it is, you name it. And what do you do? I mean, you have two choices really. You can sacrifice for them, laying aside our plans and dying to yourself and your desires and you look to serve them or you can keep on going with your plans. And which will it be? So you can die and say, my life for you. I mean, it's a death. It's the end of what you had in mind. Or you can keep on going and living for yourself. See, we have this choice, and you have it all. I mean, if one application is parents, but put that to work, right? In your job, in your careers, or with your neighbors, or with your family, some of you had to die to plans on Easter, right? Because you wanted to do something else. We all have these opportunities to see substitution at work. And you can either die to yourself and serve them or continue on to do what you want. See, love, all real love, is a substitutional sacrifice. And we see the true definition of love at Easter. We see it on the cross, and we see it in the empty tomb. Christ dying for us. Christ showing us substitution. He's showing us what love looks like. And if you're here this morning, you're striving to understand what Christ did for us over 2,000 years ago on the cross, you have to understand the concept of substitution. Because if without it, you, you will not understand the gospel. The gospel won't make any sense to you. Sin is substituting yourself for God, putting yourself where only God belongs. Sin is saying I'm in charge of my life. I'm calling the shots in my life. Sin is saying that I make my own destiny. I'm ultimately the only one in control of my life. And in essence, you're saying that you are your own creator. You are your own king. See, sin is cosmic plagiarism. You're putting yourself in the place of God. And just so you know, you're underqualified for that job. 
Sin is substituting yourself for God, but salvation is God substituting himself for you. It's God going to the cross to take your punishment for your sins. Easter is about substitution because without it, we can't be saved. Well, this takes us to the third part of the sermon this morning. It's, it's really the longest part, not because it's more important, but it's longer because it sets up the rest of the chapter as, walk, as Paul walks through the doctrine of the resurrection because this was an issue at the Corinthian church. So we've seen that Easter is about Jesus, Easter is about sin and substitution, and thirdly, Easter is about history and resurrection. Look at the end of verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, what is he talking about here? He's talking about history. He's talking about what happened 20 years earlier. He's talking about the resurrection. And why is the resurrection so important to the Christian life? It's important because if Jesus doesn't rise again, he cannot secure our salvation. He can't conquer death. And how do, how do you know if Jesus' death on the cross actually paid for your sins? How do you know if he actually defeated sin on the cross? How do you know if the punishment was taken? How do you know if it's all paid so that you can believe in him, so that there's no more condemnation for you? How do we know? Well, if someone was in some sort of debt during those days, whether they were in prison or maybe in slavery, the way they knew that debt had been paid was that they were released. And the wages of sin is death, right? We know this. We've read this. And when Jesus Christ was released from death and when he was sprung up from the chains of death, that is the proof that it was paid. The resurrection. The debt is wiped clear. It's the receipt. Right? If you go shopping this weekend and you've, and you've got your stuff in your bags and you come up to the door and one of the, the tags, you know, didn't get scanned off, right, and it beeps and it goes beep, 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 you know, and they, they come, what do they want from you? They want to find out where's the receipt. How do you have proof that you paid for this, that it's yours? They, they want to see it and you pull out the receipt and you say, see, look, it's paid for. It's paid for. It's mine. I have proof that it's mine. And the resurrection is that proof for us as Christians. Val Grieve in that book that we're going to give away says this, the receipt does not pay the debt. It is evidence that the debt has been paid. And this passage here, friends, these words in 1 Corinthians 15, this is your receipt. Payment has been made. If you're a Christian here this morning, you need to understand this. You need to remember this. You need to log this away. When your conscience goes after you, accusing you, telling you that you failed, that you're really screwed up, that you just can't do it on your own, that you can't do enough to be saved, you're not really a Christian, you turn to this passage and you see that it really had nothing to do with your ability to save yourself. But it was Christ who was killed for your sins. He was buried, he rose again on the third day, and he appeared to lots of people to prove that it's true. This passage is our receipt. The resurrection proves that our sins were paid in full. And, and, and this stamps 
paid in full across history in such a way that nobody is ever going to miss it. Now, maybe you're here this morning, a friend in, invited you, and, and, and you have questions. You ha- you're, you're a cynic. Maybe you're just having lots of doubts, and you're skeptical, skeptical of, of Christianity. I want you to realize you're surrounded by lots of people who at one time were also in your spot, who had questions. The Bible is full of skeptics. But, but one thing is true with skeptics. You have that twinge inside of you wanting it to be true. You want it to be true. You're longing for peace and for hope for tomorrow and endurance in this life. So you want this to be true. And so you come and you, and you, and you want to check things out and you're curious. It, it, could this be true? Is this true? Well, friends, Christianity promises to give you answers to your questions. It loves to show you the answers. The Bible has the answers. And right here in this passage, those that doubted if Jesus really rose from the the dead are given proof. Paul is giving them proof. He gives proof to those who doubted this to happen. And he says this, and here's the proof. Here's what he's going to say, okay? So catch on to this. He says, Jesus was seen by Cephas, and he was seen by the 12. He was seen by 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. See, James, or Richard Bachman, excuse me, in his book, Jesus and Eyewitnesses, he points out that these people are really footnotes in history. See, if you're, if you're writing a serious academic work today, especially historical work, you have to have footnotes. Why? What's the point of footnotes? See, footnotes basically say, here's how you can find out what I'm saying is right. Go look here. Right? And our, if you've read a book, an author gives an argument and then puts a footnote of where you can find the evidence of why he came to that point. And this is Paul writing this for the church saying, here, Christ is risen. Here's the footnotes. During this time, this thing happened. See, footnotes are ways for you as the reader to check the v- validity. Is this really true? And here's the sources. Paul is saying there are hundreds of people who saw Jesus with their own eyes. Go talk to them. He lists some of the names here. Really, most of them are still alive at this point. Remember, this is only 20 years later when Paul writes this. And he mentions the 12. Do you remember the 12? Those men who walked with Jesus? He knew. They knew he was the Messiah. And, and, And the resurrection... Didn't, didn't just whimper them out in faith, no, it galvanized them in their faith and their ability to serve him. They, they would never deny the fact of Jesus being alive. And, and not one of those disciples breaks. You know, they crucify Peter upside down, and he doesn't deny Jesus. Every one of those 12 dies a brutal death, a horrific death. Even John, who wrote the Gospel of John, the church tradition tells us that leaders were so angry at his ministry that they tried to boil him alive. And guess what? He didn't die. And that freaked them out. So they sent him off to the Isle of Patmos. See, every one of these disciples, no one recants. It's phenomenal. Every single one of them sticks to the same story that this is true. You guys know Charles Colson, one of President Nixon's hatchet men? 
He, he gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal, and he was saved when he was in prison serving his term. And after his Christian, he writes this. He says, I know the rex- resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles kept a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. See, these 12 saw Jesus. They knew he was alive. They were willing to die over that fact. See, what all this means, Paul is essentially saying the resurrection is not just a symbol. It's not just a nice story. It's not just a fable. It's not a legend that has been passed on from one generation to the next. But people saw him. There's evidence. It's true. Every honest lawyer in the land would love to have hundreds of witnesses that Paul gives here. I mean, they would salivate for this opportunity. Can you imagine the courtroom? Is Jesus alive? Did he actually raise from the dead? You know, counselor, do you have any witnesses? Yeah, I've got a few. How much time do we have? I've got hundreds, actually, that that seen him and testify what he's done. There's plenty of evidence. And Christianity here, and through Paul's letter, is far different than every other religion. You you look at the other religions. What, What did Joseph Smith, the head of the Mormon church, say? He says, Jesus appeared to me and three apostles and came down from heaven, and they told me I was the head of the new religion, a new denomination. They lay hand on me. Just trust me. Just trust me. You have to trust me. Muhammad says the same thing. Every prophet says the same thing. You know, God just talked to me, so just, just trust me. So the evidence only lies with one person. And we find out that when we look at these religions, the Mormon church was started in a corner. Fabricated lies. Buddhism started in a corner. Every other major world religion started in a corner. But Christianity was born right in front of everyone to see. I mean, Paul says so. He stands before the King Agrippa and Governor Festus in Acts 26, and, and Festus is annoyed with him when he's, he's giving defense in verse 24, and he says he was saying these things in his defense, and, and Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's saying it's been done for everyone to see. The evidence is there. And every other religion started in a corner. No witnesses, no proof. You just have to trust the leader. Friends, it's not true of Christianity. It wasn't started in a corner. It was, it was displayed for all to see. And friends, if you're here and you're curious about Christianity, you've had doubts, you have to consider the evidence. This is not just a fairy tale. And if the resurrection is true, then the stuff that you most long for in your life, the, the kind of world that you really want for you and your children is available, and it's only through the gospel. Friend, today can be the day of salvation for you. 
this Easter can be like no other Easter before because you've come to believe that it is true, that what Jesus said about himself was true. And if Jesus actually rose from the dead, friends, you have to accept all that he said about himself. If Jesus really defeated death, then that gives credence to every claim that he made about his life here on earth. But if Jesus did not defeat death, every claim wouldn't be true. In in the words of one man, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. See, the resurrection changes everything. So friend, I've been praying that you would turn from your sin of trusting in yourself and turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him alone this morning. If you have more questions, find someone in your row. Find me, I'll be at the door. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to sit down and go through the questions you have. We're not afraid of questions. We know where the answers are at. We'd love to share with you what it means to follow Jesus. Well, we're just about done here. We've seen the Easter is about Jesus, sin and substitution, and it's about history and resurrection, and last Easter is about grace. Paul talks about himself here in end of verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This end is, is a testimony of Paul. Paul uses the word grace here a bunch of times. He wants the readers to, to center on that theme concerning his life. Paul, Paul's not saying, hey, hey look, I'm, I'm able to do this all on my own, my own strength. No, he's, he's saying it's through grace the grace of God. It's his work. It's his strength. It's what he's done. It's, it's not mine. It's his. It's always grace. And we need to understand grace. If we're to understand Easter, if we're to understand the gospel, we need to understand and see what grace is. See, the, the gospel decenters unbelievers from the center of their own life. And they put, and Christ becomes the center. They recognize their unworthiness They recognize they are what they are by grace. And the gospel is now a functional identity. See, grace accepts you as you are, but grace doesn't just accept you. No, grace changes you. It changed Paul in drastic ways. Remember I said this a number of weeks ago, but what was Paul's resume before he was saved? I mean, you think of the most evil person in the world now, that was Paul. He was a terrorist. He he murdered Christians. His, his life mission was to go and destroy Christians, to end the church. He was even on the way to do these horrific things when Jesus stepped in, when he stepped into that road in Damascus, and he changed his life by saving him. And that's why Paul says what he says about himself in this passage here, one untimely born, the, the least of the apostles, unworthy to call an apostle. See, before he was a Christian, he hated Christianity. He doesn't say that he was an intelligent man and that God saved him because he, he was really nice. 
No, he recognizes himself and he points to God's grace. He recognizes he had no merit on his own. That grace saved him and grace changed him. When John Newton, a former slave trader who wrote the song Amazing Grace, preached on this sentence, the way he assessed himself may be the most succinct way to summarize the Christian life. He wrote, I am not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish to be, I am not what I hope to be, but I am not what I once was, a child of sin and the slave of the devil. I think I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. See, friends, grace can change you. How? Because grace is undeserved. And when you realize and understand that it's undeserved, it humbles you. It brings you low. But grace is also unconditional. Because grace is undeserved, it brings you low. That You realize you're no different than everyone else. But because it's unconditional, it also lifts you up. I'm always accepted. I'm always loved because of God's grace. And it gives peace. And it gives strength. And it can do this because it was costly. Even though it was completely free to you, we realize that, that grace was not free. It cost something. You remember, if you were here, we gathered on Friday to remember what it cost. The cost of grace. Jesus endured the punishment for our sins. He endured the separation from the Father, something that he had never experienced before. And he did all this to give salvation to his people, to give grace. And, and through grace, we are filled with wonder. Wonder of who God is and what he's done for us. See, Paul was filled with wonder at what he received from God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And he wanted to share this grace with everyone he came in contact with. You know, if you were to read tomorrow that there was a complete cure for cancer and you understand it, what would you do with that news? You know, you would want to spread that news as fast and as far as you could. You might even consider quitting your job to go do that. I mean, nothing could stop that good news, right? That people could find out the cure for cancer and that everyone's excited when they find that out. They're astounded, they're amazed, and you want to share that news. You know, the, think of the joy of knowing that your death sentence is now taken away, right? Would that change you? Wow, two of you. Do you not know someone in your life that has that death sentence? And to realize that it would be taken away, you'd want them to know. And you're going to tell everyone. You're going to be amazed. Friends, the gospel is more than that. We're not just talking about extending life on earth a few more years. We're not just talking about biding our time here on earth. We're talking about eternity. Living forever with God. We're talking about a love that never ends, escape from death and separation. We're talking about peace that will continue on and on and on. We're talking about everything that you've ever wanted in life. And so how can we not be filled with joy at the news that we've received in the gospel? And how can we not want to tell others about this? 
Friend, I'm challenged by this. I pray you are too. As we end, we need to remember that Jesus did not just defy death. He didn't just deny death. Friends, he destroyed death. He's the first one and only one to ever borrow a tomb. Jesus is alive. You know, this is why Paul can say with such confidence, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know some of you need that hope today. Man, my heart needs that hope. Christ destroyed death. And through Christ, we have hope past this life. Friends, do you believe in the risen Christ? Is he your savior? If that's true, you can face death. And you can have hope on the other side. I pray that we can rest on this truth this Easter. I pray that we would be people eager to share this truth with others. I pray that even as you leave this place in a few minutes, that you gather around the table and enjoy good food. Praise the Lord for good food. That maybe the conversation will be filled on this and what Christ has done in your life. Maybe Easter will be filled on just giving testimony one to another across the table on the significance of Easter and that we rejoice in that. That we'd be humbled again of what Christ has done for us, but we'd be joyful that we have life after death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for sending your Son to die for our sins on the cross. God, I even thank you for the silence on Saturday. You rested. And we thank you for raising up Jesus from the grave on Sunday. That Jesus is alive and that we can celebrate this new life. You are a gracious God. I pray that we would never grow tired of talking about you, of talking to you, We recognize through the gospel that you are truly our hope in life and death. And may we sing of that today. May we remember that today. We thank you that we can gather together and may you be honored and glorified in our lives as we leave this place. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.